You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect... It's not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us be better leaders. Our great coach on this episode is Sean Deitch. Sean is a former player who most recently managed Premier League club Burnley. Sean made his professional debut in 1990 and played for six different clubs until he retired in 2007. He transitioned immediately into coaching, eventually becoming the Burnley head coach, or as they say in soccer, their manager in 2012. During his time with Burnley, Sean guided the club to two promotions to the Premier League in three seasons, the 2016 Championship League title, as well as the club's first European qualification in 51 years. In early 2022, Sean left Burnley and at the time was the longest serving manager in the Premier League. Sean is the type of resourceful leader who can find a way to organise and motivate his tribe no matter what the challenge. He does this by marrying tried and tested values like work ethic and respect with a communication style that is disarmingly honest and cuts right to the heart of the matter. In this terrific interview, some of the key highlights for me were... His view that leadership is about knowing what to do when you don't know what to do. The fascinating difference he describes between winning as a manager versus winning as a player. And how he used 
what he referred to as positive realities to help motivate his team to compete with bigger and more resourced competitors, and how this mindset led Pep Guardiola to describe playing Burnley like having to go to the dentist. We were very lucky to get this interview with Sean, and I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. And just before we go to the interview, if you're a first-time listener, you can check out our library of interviews with other great coaches at our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. And now, please enjoy our interview with Sean Dodge. The Great Coaches Podcast. Sean Dodge, good evening and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Good evening. I'm very excited to talk to you, but before I get into uh, all things leadership, maybe something easy. Could you tell us where you are in the world and what you've been up to so far today? I'm in Nottingham. We changed family bases um, about nine or ten months ago from Northampton to Nottingham. Kids were getting older, needed a bit more kind of life, if you like. Yeah, moved back there. I mean, obviously, I've been away. Like, I don't really, I live in about three or four different places usually. So, yeah, I'm just taking a bit of time out and doing the stuff I've been putting off for nine and a half years. You promise all them friends and you promise them people you've met down the years, yeah, we'll do that and we'll come and do this and we'll come and do that. And then you never get around to doing it. So, just sim- some simple stuff, just literally visiting people, catching up for a coffee, catching up for a bit of dinner, a few beers here and there, a bit of golf here and there, just stuff. And then some good stuff as well. I've got an amazing invite to go to Monaco and to watch the Grand Prix, which is amazing. And the Champions League, which I've done before, but it's still great. Um, I really like music, so I'll be going to a few gigs. I think I'm going to go and see Kasabian. I know them a little bit. And Serge Pizorno, they're playing with Liam Gallagher down at Nebworth. So kind of just a mixed bag of real life stuff, stuff that you just have to put off constantly. And I've been putting that stuff off for nine and a half years. I mean, I cram some in in the summer and stuff, but weekends and stuff are are tied up and you you find that you just miss out on all these sometimes simple stuff is as much fun. Little barbecue with your mates and stuff, you miss out on all that. But sometimes the big stuff that you get invited to and you just can't do. So yeah, a bit of mixture of everything. I am very thankful to carve out a little bit of your time while you're reigniting your social life. But Sean, can I start by name-checking some of the great coaches that you've had experience with? Now, these are the four of the biggest names I think I've probably come across. It's Brian Clough, Sir Alex Ferguson, Arsene Wenger, and David Moyes. And I know there's a whole pile of others. We were talking about Eddie Jones a minute ago too. But I'd be really interested to know, from your perspective and experience, what is it you think the great coaches do differently that sets them apart? Well, I think in that four cases, they're different styles, but the same underbelly is the environment they work, they build, first of all, and they work on and they protect the culture, if you like, as well, that aligns with that. So culture and environment get thrown around in sport all the time and in business, I'm sure. And people just think you just flick a switch and it just happens and everyone aligns. It doesn't work like that. It takes time, it takes energy, it takes commitment to keep reinforcing the key values that you want to make that kind of culture and to make that mindset and that, that environment and align with simple saying, but all noses point in the right direction. And it takes time. And the underbelly of, of them guys' work is that they find their way, and all in different styles, of course. I mean, Arsene Wenger's got a completely different view, I'm sure, and, and style than Alex Ferguson, but their teams knew what they stood for. They knew how they were going to go about their business. They knew how they um, treated themselves, treated each other, treated people around them. And it seems to be a common theme through a lot of high-performing teams, high-performing managers, in simple stuff in, in rugby and stuff like that, the code they have and stripping back some of the BS, wouldn't use the real word. 
maybe stripping some of that crap out and kind of clearing the deck, so to speak, so that everyone knows it's pointing in the right direction. So I certainly know, I mean, the obvious ones, Brian Clough did it at Nottingham Forest. Everyone knew he was the boss. Everyone knew how to work there. Everyone knew how the team played. Alex Ferguson was very similar. I something probably a little bit more different over time, but don't forget, what people do forget, he laid the culture down really, really early, took away the old-fashioned English thing, took away the drinking after games, improved the diet, improved the fitness levels. And people forget that because they go, oh, his team's played this way and that way. But no one remembers that in the origins of his time there, he actually set the environment. He didn't really go radical on the football. The first team he had was 4-4-2 and sent a halves in from France who were technically good and played them in midfield as kind of like ended up being top players and enforcers. It was particularly Vieira, of course. Two amazing goal scorers and loose wide men. Well, that's a pretty English team, actually. But he was changing the culture. He was changing how that team prepared, how it got ready, its fitness levels, its, its mental fitness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then Moisey in a different way. Moisey, I think, because... I spoke recently with a group of coaches at the Leaders in Sport and I openly said, I said, I think Dave Moyes done an amazing job because West Ham's been a funny club for years and it can't quite find its way and there's a lot of different voices there, a lot of different weird energy about the crowd and how the crowd treat the the team. And he's managed to format a team in quite a methodical way, but still have a nice edge in the way they play, not over-egging anything about modern brand and modern style, sticking with the fundamentals, treating them like men, getting them fit, getting them motivated. And in a different way, to come out of what he's been through with the Man United thing and then Sunderland and all that, and of course went into West Ham and then came out of it when they felt they appointed someone who maybe they thought was better or fitted better and gone back in and done an amazing job. It's all them guys in all their different ways, but it seems to me they always have an underbelly of getting the culture right, getting all noses pointed in the right direction, and if people don't, they get rid of them. Sean, one of the ideas I've heard you speak about many times is this whole idea of top coaches are top thieves. I always really wanted to take it one step further, though, and say, or ask you rather, is there an example of something you've thieved that's really helped you in your own self-development? There's loads of little things. I mean, it's not really... I suppose it is thing a little bit. I look back at simplicity is still really important, keeping things simple, keeping your, your dialogue simple. It's really difficult because most coaches in any any field have got countless amounts of energy, thoughts going through their mind. And to strip that back and come up with key moments and key phrases or key lines. So simplicity is something, I don't think I've nicked it, but it's kind of, it gets overlooked, I would say, especially in the modern, if I just use football as an example, because I'm kind of in it, well, I'm out of it at the moment, by the way but I'm generally in it. But use that as an example, then you can get trapped in that modern, this modern thing where, you know, you've got to be talking in these weird and wonderful ways and you've got to be sharing all the information using trendy words. And sometimes you've got to strip all that out and go, whoa, whoa, what do the players need? What do they need to know? Um, so I'm not sure I've, I've, I'm not sure I've thieved that, but that seems to be a common theme about what I've noticed. Um, theme things, I think it's more like, the old-fashioned sayings and things, They're just silly things like get on the front foot, things like that. I mean, managers have been using that for years. You know, Brian Clough used to say that, you know, get on the front foot, um, head it and kick it and you've done your job to centre-halves and things like that. It's simple terminologies. So, yeah, I mean, I, I can't think too many off the bat, but I do think that generally you you steal ideas, but then you mould them into your own because you're going to deliver them in a different way than who you stole them from, of course. Um but I do think most most top coaches are top thieves and somewhere down the line, they'll have experienced. Well, the obvious one, who's a genius at it, and he actually tells the world he's a genius at it, is Mourinho. Because he studied under Bobby Robson. Yeah. He learned languages. 
He watched coaching styles. He watched warm-ups. But then what he did that was clever is he sort of nicked it, but then formulated it. So he didn't literally thieve it and then just display it as his own. He then formulated it with his own twist, his own feel, and turned it into something that made him one of the top managers around the world of all time, or certainly in a group of top managers of all time. Well, talking about thieving, I've got this quote from you, and you were telling me just off air that it's not yours, but I'm still going to read it to you anyway before I ask the question, because it's a great quote on leadership. You actually say, knowing what to do when you don't know what to do is a really good way of describing leadership. Is there an example that you've seen recently, it doesn't have to be from the football world, it can be from wherever, where you've seen someone really apply this successfully? Yeah, I kind of, I did nick that a little bit, actually. That was on a course I was on, but I just loved it. And I thought, because football can be like that. You know, everyone's staring at you. It's not necessarily you don't know what to do, but you're thinking, I could do 50 different things here and I've got 50 different voices and 50 different opinions, probably more nowadays with the media and social media and all that sort of stuff. But eventually everyone's still staring at you and they're like, oh, man, you know what are you going to do? We have to do something. So it kind of does apply, you know, know what to do when you don't know what to do because everyone's staring at you, your team's staring at you, your staff are staring at you. So even when you get flummoxed and you get lost, you've got to come out with something that makes a difference. I did it myself. We were, my first season at Burnley, because everyone thinks the Burnley story was quite sort of all glory, really. But my first um, eight months, I was getting booed off for most of that, or certainly half of it. And um we were looking over our shoulder. We, we flew like new managers do when you get a job, but not always, but often. We flew up to seventh and we were sort of around the playoffs. And then we started folding and we had injury problems and all the stuff behind the scenes that fans don't get to see. We're cutting salaries. We're offering diminished contracts out. The board are telling me we've got to cut the money. The board are telling me we're likely going to sell players and lose players. So then the players' agents are all trying to move them on and all that. We've got injuries and we've got players not motivated to play for the team. And you're trying to manage all that trying to build a culture beyond that and trying to get results, of course. And then all of a sudden the results are not coming and then you've got to find a way of, right, okay, how can I stick to task, which is build this club in a better manner for the future, try and get results whilst trying to deal with all the the drivel that's going on. And then you start losing or drawing and we had a real bad run. So it comes near the end of the season and we're looking over our shoulders and we went to Wolves and it was, I mean, a real nervy, if I've ever had true anxiety I mean real like proper medical kind of deep-seated anxiety that few weeks coming up around that period oh I mean I've never experienced anything I've never experienced it since either and we were going to Wolves game and I remember we we went in at half time and uh, Martin Patterson had scored and believe it or not the day before the game I had a word with him I thought you you don't look like you're ready for this and he, he scored and I went in at half time and I honestly thought I don't know. I don't know what to say. It. I could feel it, and I was thinking, "Oh my goodness!" You know. And I remember going to the toilet and just standing in the toilet with my arms on the door, composing myself, thinking, "Right, I'm, I'm not sure what's going on here." I was like thinking, and that was the biggest moment for me, like knowing what to do when you don't know what to do. But then you go back to your framework. So I have a framework which I learned from. So I go right, stick with your framework. So front to back, back to front. Strikers, I want you to do this. Midfield, I want you to do that. Back four, I want you to do this. Defensively, I'm in attack. Back four, I want you to do this. Midfield, I want you to do that. Forwards, I want you to do that. So that's my framework. So I thought, right, stick with your framework. And that gives you something to anchor you. It gives you something to a base to work from. Again, it gives you some clarity because if not, at that moment, you end up just rambling and rambling and rambling, which I probably did a little bit more than I remember it. And then we went on, we won the game and 
history changed. You know, we were safe. Like, well, it's a strange season that season of the championship. We ended up finishing 11th. It sounds mad. We, we, you know, three games before we're looking over our shoulder, could have got relegated. Three games later, we finished 11th. So that's how crazy that season was. But that was a moment of knowing what to do when you, you sort of don't know what to do. But you have to, you have to find some way of seeing through the mist and the feelings and the emotion and go, right, okay, how can I find my way here? And I genuinely was thinking, I have no clue what I'm going to say. I have no clue. All I was thinking was, please win. Just please win. <laughs> I remember being like that, that kind of desperation and having to hold that back and just stick stick to sort of a, a game plan, if you like. So, yeah, I mean, that's a, a real-life experience. It's not all glory. You know, sometimes it's it, you're out your comfort zone. It's very difficult. You're feeling it. But it does make you stronger and it makes you more experienced for the next time if, if you feel that way and it comes around. Sean, can I just ask you about anxiety? Because... You're dealing with a club full of young men. I know a lot of them are very well paid, but I imagine the anxiety in that group must peak and trough and go up and down. Did that experience help you deal with the very normal anxieties of life afterwards with your players? Uh, yeah, I think I had a base of player, right? Some of what anxiety feels like, or professional anxiety, of course, you around game time and mm. the feelings before, the feelings afterwards. As a manager, it's way different, by the way. The, the feeling after a game when you're a player, win or lose, but obviously a win in heightens it, the elation and everything. When you're a manager, you feel like super tired. It's almost like playing when you win. It really draws a lot from you. And it's a different kind of feeling. And I think the, the medical imbalance in your body changes as well. You're managing so many different things. Whereas when you're a player, you're just managing yourself, really. You're trying to rub off your teammates, but you want to play well, you win a game, you feel great. Often it's taken so much planning, organisation, focus, concentration when you're a manager that after that you feel tired, you feel almost depleted, really. And then you're sort of running on empty for a while. So that's a different feeling completely. And I think dealing with all them feelings, the emotion of it, it's certainly the more you do it, the more you balance out, the more you get used to the, the win, the draw, and the loss and handling them occasions. I think I've been too bad. I'm not one who, I've never been one who lost and goes on and says, right, that's it. I'm not going out. I'm not doing anything. I've never, it's not my style. I've never thought that was appropriate. My ex-manager, I think, a hell of a lot of John Duncan. I remember he used to have this saying, and you'll understand the train of thought. He used to say, if you go to a funeral, the person who's crying their eyes out and the person who's not, it doesn't mean they're not both feeling it the same. And I remember thinking, mm. that's, that's probably something to hold on to. Now, of course, the funeral's not relevant, but the point is, I could be not seeming like I could go home, I can carry on, I could go out with my friends, I could go out with the wife, go out with the kids and handle that, even though internally I'm still feeling it drastically. I'm thinking, oh, I could have done that, could have done this, could have done that, could have done this. But that self-management is very, very important, I found. How are you managing you? I think that's a really important thing because no one actually knows, you know, how you feel. The reason why after a game, I'm rambling now, but the reason why after a game, managers, when they go in the room together, or staff, less so with it with a lot of the foreign managers just culturally, but the old English managers always go in the room, their staffs forgetting about the pandemic and stuff. Virtually always the two managers gravitate towards each other because they're the only two who really know how it feels to be in that moment. I tell you now, they're the only two people in the room who really know how it feels. All this staff are giving all their opinions, but they're the only two really know how it feels. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You, up until very recently, you were the longest serving coach in the Premier League. You must have had routines to replenish your energy. I mean, you talked about going out with the family. Were there any other things that you did from a religiously, from a routine to make sure you got up and you kept going? I think I've used life as a base to bring a bit of reality to what I've done professionally. And you still got to get up. I still get up, drive the kids to school. Um, I remember famously, we, we got promoted the first time in Burnley, which was like historic and all the story cutting money and all that. The next one, I was, I was building a bed. We got a bed and I had to build it, put it together for one of the kids. What did you think I was going to do? Just like drink champagne for six months. So... I mean, I'm a bit like that anyway, to be fair. And it's, it's often a bad thing, actually. I was explaining to someone the other day, one of my worst qualities, I, I'm constantly underwhelmed. I, honestly, I've done some amazing things. I've been to amazing things. And I kind of go, yeah, good. No, all right. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it's a bad thing. It, the good thing is it keeps you leveling the job in uh, working in football and the highs and lows and that. I can handle that pretty pretty evenly. But the bad thing is when you get something really exciting or something amazing, you just kind of go, oh, yeah, it's all right. Yeah. So it can be a bad thing, but yeah, so I'm a bit like that anyway. But yeah, I mean, life grounds you, real life grounds you, or it certainly does me. So that does take away some of the the emotion and the power of the emotion around what we do as football managers. Well, it does me, it sort of levels me out a little bit. I heard Barack Obama actually say, once someone asked him once what the secret to his success was, and he said, my highs are not too high and my lows are not too low. Well, me and Brack, you're in good company. Yeah, good friends. <laughs> it's good that you put me. I mean, intelligent like him, of course, as well. Not a shadow of Sean, I've got another really good quote from you. I'd like to explore a bit. Actually, you say one thing I learned was the players have to have enough flexibility to be themselves. And what I liked about this, and what I wanted to ask you was, how do you go about managing this line between giving people flexibility, but also making sure there's some adherence to the team rules, to the norms that you're trying to set down. It must be quite challenging, and I'd be interested to know how you go about that. Well, buy-in's the biggest thing. So getting buy-in from the players is a massively important thing. Aligning why it's there is, I think, very, very important. I mean, funnily enough, when I, when I came out of Burnley recently, there was a lot of reports about how the players were now enjoying it more because it was more open. And, and literally, I mean, me and my assistants, we laugh about this. And I mean this genuinely, I, I, not about what's happened at Burnley, but because I didn't like things like wearing white socks. Right? They've got this thing, modern obsession in football, they wear white socks. And I go, right, show, tell me a medical reason why white socks are better than blue football socks. I say, give me a medical reason. So I wouldn't let them white socks. And then the first day we got sacked, every player had white socks on. And you just kind of, I, have to, I know, yeah, but you have to laugh. Look, it's players being players. You know, it's like the Wicked Witch is dead for a pair of white socks. But in the early days, we formulated this, this part, yeah, again, part of the culture. And we said, look, there's no medical reason white socks. I don't like them. It's this trend that came in. I said, if there was, you could wear any colour socks you want. 
wear shin pads because I want training to be proper. I want it to feel like a game. I want you to feel every day like you're playing a game. And for the obvious, injury prevention. I mean, nowadays, there's not much tackling in football anyway, but you've got to remember, I've been there nine and a half years. So there was a simple reason for that. And then what we did really to align to align some of the thoughts of players and the feelings of players. So, so players have players often have egos, and you need an ego, by the way. So just to be clear, because when you use that word, people think you're somehow downgrading them. I'm not. You need it, right? If you're working in front of walking, sorry, in front of um, seventy-eight thousand Old Trafford, you need an ego. You need to have that inner thing that says, right, I'm ready. I'm going to be the person that's going to make a difference. What am I many saying? So I didn't want to take that away, but you have to mould it and align it with everyone else so what we used to do was try and get the players to realize that look you're not undermining each other you can laugh at each other you can be with each other so we do things like in small-sided games at the end of a session the losers that to do a dance-off in front of the winners and a sing-off and stuff like that and the idea was it wasn't to embarrass them it was to make them realize look we're all laughing at each other it's not about i'm not trying to undermine you or belittle you i'm trying to let you know that it's fine to be like that. You can be like that. And we tried to make it an egoless place when we were in the camp. So one of the biggest things I said, when you get to the, the drive, because we had a long drive going into Burnley, says when you come through the gates at the front of the drive, take your ego off. When you come in here, we're all as one, me included. We'll all have a bit of fun. We'll all share our thoughts. We'll all be just all part of the same thinking. When you go back out, put your ego back on, do whatever you want in your private life. Conduct yourself however you want. Uh, within reason, of course. So the thing is with all this, I listen to some of these podcasts and I do quite a lot myself and talks and stuff. For people listening or, or sharing it, it's all your brain goes, yeah, 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 oh yeah, of course, of course. But when you're doing it, it's not that easy. You seen people are really, really struggling to have a dance-off in front of someone else. And yet rationally, they'll go in front of 78,000 at Old Trafford and play. And yet having a dance-off in front of uh, 15 of their mates is like, oh my goodness, I just can't do it. Or singing in front of your mates. It's a strange thing, that. You don't want to embarrass people. You don't want to make them feel so, so uncomfortable, which some do. But once you get through the immediate feeling, everyone realises, oh, that's all it was. I just had a you know, dance for like 15. That to dance for 15 seconds. You go like... And then... Once they got more used to it, you got people breakdancing, doing mad stuff. So all of a sudden, they're all in it together, and it becomes more fun. And we we had a spin wheel where we used to do fines, and we had all sorts. You know, down the years, we've had all sorts of people sitting in a river. We've had people doing lap dances on each other. We've had people with boy bands doing singing and all sorts. And it was all just designed to strip out the ego and say, "Listen, you can be yourself." You don't have to be anyone else in here. In here, you can be yourself. You come in free-minded and just get ready to go. Oh, that's very powerful. I think I'm going to bring uh, karaoke into the boardroom from now on. So that's a great <laughs> idea. Sean, when you arrived at Burnley, you gave the players a questionnaire to fill in so that you could get their views on the team culture. Now, if someone else was listening and they wanted to improve the culture of their team or they're moving into a new organisation. Yeah. Other than a questionnaire, what other tips would you give them to really get under the skin of what that culture's like? Well, I think the idea, let's face it, you're trying to get them to speak truthfully, you're trying to get truthful feedback. But the reason for the questionnaire, people don't like that. The modern society, it's not just footballers, you know, kids, everyone. We always used to laugh, said, if you give me your phone, you text me 50 different reasons about me. Good, bad, and indifferent. But I ask you to give, tell me in front of a group, and it's like, mm, everyone just goes in shutdown. So then we gave them a questionnaire. It was, the idea was complete anonymity. If you wanted to put your name on it, you could. If you didn't want to put your name on it, you didn't have to. If you want to dick about and put something stupid or some silly shit on it, you can if you want, um, but that's not going to help anyone. 
the idea was that when you feed back, this is your chance to tell me and the staff exactly what you're thinking, exactly what you want. We tried to keep the questions very open, not guiding them to what we thought the answers were. I specifically explained to them I didn't want classroom answers. I said, just tell me the truth. I said, I don't want, oh, yeah, we're going to work really hard and we're going to do this, we're going to do that. If you're not feeling it, don't give me bullshit. Just tell me your real truthful answers about what you think the questions mean to you. I think at the time I had a pretty small squad. I'd say there was like 19, 18, 19 players. I would say we've got about 12 or 13 real ones. Obviously, you always have one football. We had a footballer draw, a bloke shagging a woman and all that, you know, and stuff like that. But that's footballers being football. It's, it's the way I've been a footballer or in football all my life. There's always one who thinks it's funny and all that sort of stuff. Usually the most fragile person does that, by the way, in my experience. But anyway, most of them, there was about 13, filled it in completely and really well. There's a few missed out a few questions, which is fine, maybe not for them. Um, then two or three dicked about. So we took that, got the information, took it back to them, fed it back, said, right, this is what you've said. So therefore, because you've said it, you own it. But now we've got to do something about it. Because some of it was obviously derogatory about what they felt the team were doing and what they needed and all that sort of stuff. And then we took it on from there. And slowly but surely started forming this new culture, got rid of some of the players who we thought weren't the ones we wanted. Some went because they were out of contract, went elsewhere. And then we bought players in who we thought would give us a renewed energy. And, and it worked. I'm tempted to ask you about those fragile egos and whether you've got any particular philosophy or thoughts on dealing with them. Well, it's not easy. Yeah, again, the fine line, I personally, I don't use expletives at players very often. I certainly don't call them names, never. I've never called a player a name as in a derogatory name. It's not my thing that um, I used to get that. And I used to say, why are you calling me that name? I'm not that. You can call me what you want, but not that. So I've never done that. I'd usually talk to them. There was three ways I used to work. It was talk, talk, talk. Then I push, push, push. And if they still aren't wanting to do it, then I'll drag them. I'll drag them. I'll just literally drag them to where they need to be until they just recognise the fact, right, okay, I was missing the point here. And if they can't do any three, then they have to go. You've got to get them out because they're just going to sap the life out of everything. You know what I mean? Mood hoovers, as we call them. They're just going to suck the life out of everything. So usually in thirds, I mean, it's a massive generalisation. You go into a club, a third are with you straight away because they think, right, new manager, no ideas, and they've maybe been out the side, they want to impress you. A third are we sitting on the fence a little bit, not sure which this way is going to go. They get a third who everything's shit straight away. You're shit manager, shit, 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 shit. That's the way it goes, usually in my experience. Both as a player, coach and a manager, that's been my experience of groups. So I use that as a very general rule of thumb, but that's what I use. So I think, right, that's probably how we're going to get it. And then if we can get the bottom third to push into the middle and the middle into the top, then you win in the bat. Sean, what's fascinating, I think, to all non-sporting people about your story the Burnley story is. And I'm going to include Watford in that as well. You had a period at Watford where you had some great success. There are examples of less resourced organisations taking on bigger competitors and outperforming them. And competing against more resourced competitors is something all of us face every day. So I wanted to sort of ask you, what have you learned about motivation and mindset when it comes to competing against more resourced organisations or teams? We sort of worked on the idea of reality, really. You know, positive realities, as I call it. So I never BS the team. I wouldn't stand in front of them when you're playing Man City and go, these are crap, lads. I say, look, we know these are proper players. These are proper, proper players. But if we can make the game about us, if we can make it uncomfortable, if we can make it feel like it's not their kind of formatted game, then that just knocks them out of kilter. And if we knock them out of kilter, do a few get a bit disgruntled? Do they make it feel different? It feels awkward. And we try to use that kind of feeling amongst a group 
And then it was like build that mentality. And what about that one that is the one? What about that game when you do beat them? What about that feeling? How about that? How good does that feel? So we kind of, I mean, the best, one of the best accolades I've ever been given, I remember Pep Guardioli was waxing lyrical about all the teams who went to Man City and they played good football and he won 5 nil obviously every time, which he did eventually against us. But the first few seasons he used to say, going to Burnley is like, like going to the dentist. And I was loving it. I said, I said, I'm absolutely loving that. It was like the biggest compliment I think I've probably ever been given by someone of his prowess. I mean, I actually met him a few times. We have a laugh about some of the stuff. It was a compliment because he's going, he's basically going, it's hard, it's awkward, it's uncomfortable. And, and when you build that mentality, it becomes a bit of a badge of honour. And then all of a sudden, I mean, some of the things we've laughed at, you know, down the years, so you'll know some of this, but we got this tag about this hardy team and they're tough and all that. You only have to look at our bookings and our sendings off. They're like the lowest. Some season, they were like the lowest in the Premier League. And we used to laugh. I used to be saying to players, you're soft as any danger of like, actually getting stuck in any danger of laying a glove on someone. And yet the outside world were going, oh, they're nasty, they're rough and tough. And then you got the referees buying into it and all that. And you go, what are you talking about? The game, the game now is the softest game ever, honestly. I mean, it's bizarre how soft football is now. And yet we were this rough team and all that. And it just made us laugh. We used to go, I mean, I never, I never told the press we were soft as shit. I thought, sod that. I'll let everyone think that we're tough and hardy. I mean, it's really amusing to me. Sometimes you just think, have you got nothing better to write about than some load of utter drivel about how tough this team are? You don't have to look at the bookings. You don't have to look at the sendings. I think it was the longest one. And, oh, and then Nathan Collins got sent off at Brentford. That's right. And that was like, a, you know, he brought someone down. No, right. for the descent, no sendings off for descent. No sending off a bad tackle, well, 100 games or something, over 100 games. And yet we were this hard team. And we used to wet ourselves. Me and the staff used to, honestly, every time we used to read it or we used to hear it, we used to absolutely wet ourselves. And then the opposing manager would be telling the world, this hard team, they shouldn't be allowed to do, they shouldn't be allowed to play. Like and we used to wet ourselves laughing. We're like the softest game. Football is the softest sport probably in the world now. You know what I mean? And you go like, they're making out like these, these people are running around hurting people. It was the most weird thing. Most weird. I, I think it's the power of mindset, Sean. I think that's what it was. They were reacting to that well, mindset. I'm going mean, to make it clear we didn't dispel that. We didn't dispel it. We used it. Yeah, again, when you're going, uh, we started on about, or I started on about beating these teams and how you find ways. Well, we certainly didn't dispel it. We go, right, no, no, no. If they want to think that, then we'll deliver the best we can with it. But I think some of it, joking about it, came out of energy. I mean, we, I remember we beat, you know, we got a 2 2 at Man City and it was three days after Newcastle, we got a 3 3. And we got 3-3 three, three at Newcastle. We did 118k as a team. And three days later, no, two days later, it was over the Christmas period. We went to Man City, did 120k. And got a 2-2. Two, two, and we're 2-0 down at half-time. And we went down that season. But I tell you now, it weren't for a lack of effort. I mean, the players were unbelievable. So that's another weapon, by the way. Seems simple. But you can find a way of outworking a team until they just go, oh my goodness, these never stop. And that, that's a good weapon, that is. I mean, it's not easy to get that mindset of players to work constantly for 95 minutes. But if you can get it, it's a real weapon, that is. Sean, could I take a bit of a sidestep? And I, I hope this isn't a problematic question, but in 2020, there was that banner flying across the ground. I'm not going to repeat what it said. I don't think it's necessary. But some people considered it a racist message. And your response was pretty, you were pretty forthright. You stood up to the fans, you took questions and you got positive and negative feedback for it. But it must have been a really strong learning for you. And I'm wondering what it taught you about dealing with potentially ethically challenging issues. Well, I think it was, uh, I think it was tough for everyone. I think that, that whole period 
was tough for everyone. It's ended up being a real positive for everyone. Obviously, it's highlighted so much and the power, the, the wave of power that's come after that um, in such a positive way. I mean, it was just it was just surreal, really, because you're trying to focus on the game, don't forget. I'll tell you the hardest part about football, and I don't want to go too much into all this, but, you know, generalising, because there's lots of incidents of what's gone on. But football manager now being questioned about, like, things that have nothing to do with the game. It's really, really difficult. And then... Certain people are now questioning the manager, why don't they know about this and why don't they know about that? And why they at the end of the day, they're football coaches or football managers. So there's some extreme things can happen around a football game, but they can't know about everything. Then sometimes they go, Well, okay, well, what view are you giving about what's your depth of knowledge on these things? So at least give them a chance to get some knowledge before you start sort of digging into them and going deep about their, their knowledge base. It's got tricky in football management now. There's a lot goes on in football now and a lot of things outside of trying to win a game that the manager seemingly has now got to be an expert on. And I think some of it's a little bit unfair, to be honest. You know, some of it's a little bit out there, I think, sometimes. It didn't stop you stepping into it, though. You seemed very in control when you spoke about it, but you didn't seem to be shirking or was, stepping back from it. I think everyone spoke really well about it. I think in the sense that it was unacceptable. Everyone agreed that. We have to park it, though, because you don't, you know that weird thing about coverage? You don't give it too much coverage, do you? Because mm. you're always advertising it. So you're like, well, don't, don't give it too much coverage. So let's just park it as quickly, but not in that way that you're parking it because it's not um, serious. Right, let's go, right, can we focus on the real good stuff? They've done so much work on that sort of stuff, and as, as, as has the game, obviously, the, the game of football. So, yeah, a lot of work done by so many, so many, and, and but you have to voice it, not, not just myself. Ben Meems, captain, and other players got asked. And then, in a strange kind of way, it built a very positive effect. The negative beginning, the wave of positivity that came from that, actually, it really brought it on from everyone. And everyone went, right, that is clearly unacceptable. That's not part of what we believe. It's not part of what the club believes. It's not part of the majority of people believe around that area. And it really brought a powerful hit of positivity, actually. So that was the good thing. And pushing, pushing the new voices of what's gone on since then, I think. Sean, you've been hugely generous with your time and we are, we have been talking for about an hour and I think we'll go for an hour, another hour, at least if we had a couple of beers. But maybe I'll just finish with one last question because I know you've had a pub named after you and you've had a huge hand in developing the great facilities that are now at Burnley. But beyond the physical things, when you think about legacy, when you hope to define what it is that you've left behind, how would you describe that legacy? What do you want it to be? I don't want to get too over the top with this when you're asking me about my own situation. But I think that the easiest thing for me, the easiest answer was when I went in there in my, my interview about the team. So a lot of managers say, we're going to do this, we've done that. I said, the one thing I'll guarantee, they'll be sweating the shirt. And I think hard work is often under, under everything of success, under all successes. And I think if, if, if anyone would ever say, what did he give underneath everything? I'd say he gave his lot. I gave him a lot to what we do. I gave my lot, my my hard work in work ethic, which I preached to the players. I gave it myself, and then hopefully some key core values: a bit of respect, a bit of pride, a bit of kind of personality with it, a hard work ethic, as I said. So some key core values. I would like to think that Burnley stood for something when I was there, and hopefully some of them will keep in the future. I know things change, and I know people will bring their own methods there and all that. But I'd like to think that some of the key core values about it, things that were important to me behind the scenes, we get loads of feedback 
about the conduct of the team. We didn't, until recently, the new owners wanted to start trouble with security. We never troubled security anywhere, apart when we went to Istanbul and we were advised to, where the team were open, that we'd see kids at airports, there'd be people write emails inside, amazing, your players, team hotels, they'd say, you're, you're our favourite team by a mile, the way your players are with the staff. And all that. that meant a lot to me. So it's not easy. And I'm not blaming footballers, right? Footballers has changed. We all know life's changed, the way people conduct themselves. Now. But that meant a lot to me. The way players conduct themselves, when they handled themselves on behalf of what they were, what the team were, what the club were. So things like that. I think more of them, that feel, as much as anything, would rub off, I think. And just believe. You know, just believe. Because when the first season, everyone thought we were done. They thought we were going to get relegated and we got promoted. So just the inner belief to go and be successful. Belief, good behaviour, sweat on the shirt. It's probably not a bad place to end. So, yeah, absolutely. it's not a bad start. It's not a bad base to work for. No, it's not. Sean, I can't thank you enough for your time tonight. It's been a cracking interview, and I wish you all the best for whatever adventure lies ahead of you next. Hi, everyone. It's Mike here, and you've been listening to the great coach, Sean Deitch. Sean was a great guest, very open and honest. Some of the other key highlights for me were the story he shares about being anxious at halftime in a key match taking a few minutes alone in the bathroom to compose himself, then using a Stoicism-inspired framework to communicate with the team. The importance of simplicity when it comes to communicating and using familiar sayings to connect with people, particularly when you have so much going through your mind as a coach. How it takes time and commitment to align the culture to the values and mindset that you're trying to create. And the role that ego plays in being able to perform in front of large crowds, but how that same ego needs to be managed. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like Gavin Weeks who said, this is becoming a treasure trove of great interviews. Excellent work. Thanks, Gavin. The interaction with people around the world who listen gives us great energy. And so if you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. And all the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.